Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We will help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We will share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Alyssa. I'm Kate. I'm Nithya. Today, our discussion is about the book Emotional Agility by Susan David. Get unstuck, embrace change, and thrive in work and life. Emotional Agility is a revolutionary, science-based approach that allows us to navigate life's twists and turns with self-acceptance, clear-sightedness, and an open mind. No matter how intelligent or creative people are, or what type of personality they have, it is how they navigate their inner world, their thoughts, feelings, and self-talk that ultimately determines how successful they will become. Emotional agility is not about ignoring difficult emotions and thoughts. It's about holding them loosely, facing them courageously and compassionately, and then moving past them to bring the best of yourself forward. This book shares four key concepts that allow us to acknowledge uncomfortable experiences while simultaneously detaching from them, thereby allowing us to embrace our core values and adjust our actions so they can move us where we truly want to go. So we're going to talk today about emotional agility. What do we mean when we talk about emotional agility? What is it and what's the importance of it? I'll sort of dive in. In the book, she talks about it as loosening up and calming down and living with more ease and intention around our emotional lives. For me, I really think about it as it's so easy in our emotional lives to be compulsive in the way that we react to our emotions and to be driven by them or to be driven by avoiding them. Agility with emotions is playfulness with them, being able to have them and choose whether we do things about them and what we do for them and actually being able to pivot in response to emotions or change how we're feeling. And it's important because it gives us choice and power. I see it as a dance. If you imagine a ballroom, then your emotions might be your dance partner at times. Some of them might be lingering in the corner of the room, a little further away from you. But you have that choice, as you say, Kate, as to which ones you engage with, which ones you don't. And it's possible to engage with them lightly and not have them overtake you and still leave you with agency. So in that way, I think if you look at the word agility as being opposed to, say, rigidity, I think that's what Susan David is getting at. Love that metaphor, Nithya. It conjures such an image in my mind, that idea of looking at the world as it is, as opposed to the way we want it to be, Uh of having your emotions as that dance partner and looking at what is happening on this dance floor and where do I want to really engage and where do we want to maybe pivot a little and do a two-step over here. (laughs) So thank you for that. I really like that metaphor. And I think that was something that really struck me at the very beginning reading this book was that idea of agility being about really paying attention to context and also that acceptance of how do we want to respond to the world as it is 
rather than responding from disappointment or resentment that the world isn't the way we might want it to be. Yeah. When you say acceptance, it makes me think of there's an accepting of the world as it is, like you say, and there's also acceptance of the emotion itself. Because when we look at the world around us and we see things that aren't the way we think they should be, that that might cause an emotion. But then there's that other step of what do we do when the emotion comes up? And actually making that emotion wrong and saying, no, I have to accept the world the way it is. And I'm supposed to be happy. And let me just think positive thoughts here actually goes counter to that. So it is kind of an interesting paradox where accepting what is also requires accepting how you're feeling about it. Otherwise, it can actually lead to negative consequences if you try to make what you feel wrong. And of course, that's super easy when what we're feeling is nice and happy and lightful. (laughs) And when what we're feeling is angry or sad or frustrated or disappointed or exasperated, if those are the things that we're feeling, to compassionately accept that that is actually how we are right now. Because for most of us, we don't actually want to feel those feelings. (laughs) If we had a choice, we, we wouldn't. It's also something to remember, too, that when we think about how she stresses that our feelings are not facts, that that has to go for both the comfortable and uncomfortable feelings (laughs) that we feel. It can be great to think about the fact that I'm having this certain thought and it might be leading me into what she calls a spiral of angst. That's a great time to step in and say, "Okay, hold on, because my feelings or my thoughts are not facts. But what can I learn from them? What is the data that it's giving me? That can be harder to do when we are having really happy thoughts. So that idea of separating the thinker from the thought and that idea, that question that she asks of what's the funk, what's Mm -hmm. the function, to ask that in both the positive and negative, how do we think about our thoughts in the more neutral sense and just say, what's this telling me? What's this telling me about myself? What's this telling me about the situation that I'm in? What's it telling me about what my instincts are in terms of how I want to respond to this? And that whole idea of creating space between the thinker and the thought in order to then determine what's the next action. I'm thinking about one of the lessons that I had to learn as an actor and director, which is if you believe the raves, you have to believe the pans. Yeah. And (laughs) that actually, one of the reasons that lots of people don't read their reviews is because they don't have any equanimity about whether it's good or bad. And so that you hear all these stories about actors who only want to read the raves. Like they want to be fed with the accolades and they don't want to hear any of the others. And then if you actually dig into a review, you learn what the reviewer was looking for. That is why they are giving you a pan or a a rave. And that might give you some feedback you can use. The step of getting past the, oh, they liked it to why did they like it is hard. And I think there's fear around really, truly feeling emotions too. 
in a lot of people. Absolutely. I think whether positive or negative, as you say, maybe in the quote negative emotion side, we may feel like, well, I don't really want to sit in anger and I don't really want to sit in frustration. Even sitting in joy in a real way and thinking about, wow, why do I feel joy? What's good? Even that can induce fear actually sometimes because it is a deeply vulnerable exercise. And the truth is folks who bottle up their emotions, something that neuroscience tells us is that you can't select feel emotions or engage with emotions. If you try and say, I'm not going to feel the ones I think are negative, it's also going to be a lot harder for you to feel true joy or to belly laugh when something's hilarious because that engaging with emotions is a muscle. In this book, Emotional Agility, it doesn't make that distinction saying, well, you know, feel the good ones, don't feel the bad ones. They go together. You can't just turn off one and turn on the other one. And as for me, I'd rather feel everything than feel nothing. (laughs) But that can be scary as well. And you know, I had to learn that. I mean, one of the things that she talks about is she talks about some people oscillate between bottling up their feelings and I'm spacing on the word that she used. Brooding, right? Brooding. Thank you. Brooding, sort of sitting in them and being overwhelmed by them and just sort of getting lost in them and ruminating on them by repeating them. Some people oscillate between those two unhealthy ways of working with emotions because working with them more healthily is a skill that most of us have to learn or don't. I was raised in a culture where bottling up emotions was rewarded. The good part of that was that I didn't feel any of the bad stuff. The bad part of that was that I ended up deeply depressed because I didn't feel any of the good stuff either. And I flipped to feeling everything too much eventually. Part of the reason that it's scary to start to feel the feelings is that once you start to feel, they sort of blossom and they come out and they fall out and they sort of leak out (laughs) because they've been (laughs) bottled up. And so the pressure is there and then they can be overwhelming if you don't know how to hold your distance. So now I would rather feel them, but I definitely was like bottle. No, I want to feel them. No, I'm overwhelmed by them. I have to bottle them up again. No, I want to feel them. Oh, I'm overwhelmed by them. I have to bottle them up again. Learning to actually feel them without wallowing in them, without brooding on them, without being overwhelmed by them is hard. And learning that you can actually like set aside time, like I'm going to feel them now and it's okay to compartmentalize tomorrow or in 10 minutes is really valuable if you're trying to figure out how to break that oscillation pattern. Yeah, her way of describing and making the case for journaling was a different way than I've seen it before. And there was something about it that made more sense to me and was encouraging in terms of looking at it as putting words to your feelings. She specifically says, don't write it with the idea of there being a future reader. And I think sometimes that's what trips me up and trips other people up is the idea of what if somebody comes across this, but looking at it as an exercise to put words to your feelings and to process through them so that you don't bottle or brood. Suddenly there was just a more usefulness to the idea of journaling. I just really appreciated the framing of it in terms of the usefulness of journaling as a tool to increase our own emotional agility. Mm. You know, it's so interesting as you say that, because I have spent 
ages and ages and ages in communities where people like Julia Cameron's morning pages as a journaling tool. And so that tool is um, get three pages of writing down first thing in the morning. And the idea is clear your head of the monkey mind, whatever is in your brain right now, just sort of get all of that out. And it's never worked for me as a technique because for me, it was always a form of brooding. It was Mm -hmm. always a form of rumination and it always made things worse. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what outlets are useful for processing emotions. Mm. Journaling for some can feel really abstract, as you were referring to earlier, Alyssa. With some structure, it can help, but then it's not going to work for everybody. But finding an outlet is key. I mean, talking of bottling and brooding, Kate, I think I probably grew up in the opposite kind of household as you, where it was, well, not only a brooding household, but uh, (laughs) unhealthy in other ways. And so we learn those patterns early as to what outlets are appropriate and what do we do when we feel an emotion. So it takes some unlearning over the course of your adolescent and adult years to say, oh, maybe that wasn't the best way. What outlet can I choose instead? And I think they have pluses and minuses. I know that for me, when I'm feeling something these days, this is something I've picked up with the help of my therapist, is actually naming the emotion. And of course, Susan David talks about this too, the importance of naming. So before you start processing the emotion, before you start replaying that conversation in your head or whatever, to say, what actually, what is it that I'm feeling right now? Because that's not a muscle that I learned early in my childhood. It was just whatever you're feeling, it just comes right out, right? The words and, and everything come out. But actually, the step zero there is like, well, what is this? Because I I feel that many of us may stop at saying, I feel terrible, or I feel upset, or I feel great. And these are really vague terms. And it helps actually to get specific about, are you feeling stressed or disappointed or betrayed? Or are you feeling validated? I mean, there are distinctions in these that then help you say, okay, well, then what do I need to do about it? Do I need to sit here and reflect and journal for a second? Or do I need to call a friend and talk about this? Or do I just need to go for a walk? It actually helps you find a channel if you know what it is that you're feeling. That's been my experience. And a lot of those feeling words are words that are actually, they've got a judgment implied in them about here's how it relates to my values and what's important to me. So I'm feeling betrayed is actually, I'm feeling physical sensations that I'm interpreting and what I'm feeling is unsafe. And I'm feeling like I have this value of trust and trustworthiness. And I have this feeling of something else that's in a relationship that has been damaged. And so I'm putting this judgment on it and I'm calling it betrayed. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this unpacking that can happen when you can go, okay, so why is betrayed what I'm feeling when what's actually in my body is that my palms are sweaty and my heart is constricted. And that piece of discernment can't even start if the only level of qualification you've got on your emotions is I feel icky. Right. (laughs) Kate, you bring up one of the strongest themes throughout the book is this idea of being clear about our values and understanding what our values are, how that influences our emotions and our emotional agility. So in the example that you just gave, doing that kind of unpacking and realizing these feelings are coming from some misalignment between either your actions or the actions you perceive of another and your own value. Where are those bumping up 
against each other. And the way to get to the core of that is to be clear on what value of ours is being stepped on or being challenged. Or being honored in the case of a really positive emotion. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. This moment is bringing me joy because I value my connection with you and because I value the intellectual engagement and because I value doing something that's going to be impactful in the world because other people can listen to this conversation, right? That's how this kind of thing happens right here in this moment. It's this sort of circle that happens. If you believe that emotions serve a function, you can learn your values by exploring your emotions. And if you know your values, you can understand your emotions. When you put them together, you can figure out, oh, I can serve my values which will have a ripple effect in my emotions. That's the agility piece. That's the cycle out of Mm -hmm. wallowing, brooding is to say, okay, I've got the message. The emotion is serving this function in my life, which is to point me in this direction. And if I take a step in that direction, I've honored my emotion and changed something. Yeah. The language that has worked with some of the people that I work with is saying it's just data. It's the emotions are data. Her language is what's the function. So whatever that is, but when you are able to find some language that helps a coworker, a colleague, or someone that you're coaching make that separation between the thinker and the thought or between the emotion and fact, that idea of it's all data. And that also goes to what she talks about emotional agility being about opening ourselves up to learning opening ourselves up to learning and experimentation and growing is being able to be in the midst of feeling something and also be able to take a step back and say, what is this telling me? What's the data I get from this? What can I learn from what I'm feeling right now? Yeah, it's holding both of those together as equally valid, the emotion being valid and being able to just set it aside for a second as you go through this analysis. And, you know, if you think about it, it's uh, when we talked about thinking fast and slow some episodes ago, where different parts of your brain give you different messages and the part of our brain parts, I should say, of our brain that are active when we're feeling an emotion deeply are not the same parts of our brain that are active when we're doing, Alyssa, what you just said, which is what's the value that's being tapped here? And what's my learning? Those are, those are distinct parts of the brain. It's there's like a reactive part of your brain and the cortex in your brain, frontal cortex, where you're doing that complex processing. So actually, I mean, it's a real skill to be able to do those things at the same time, because it's different parts of your brain being active and you sitting in that and being able to say, yep, I'm super sad. And I'm going to also do this higher order processing. Yeah. I mean, this and here I think is really powerful. And there's a lovely story about a kid and their father, when the kid gets upset playing a game, the father says, can you be upset and play the game? And we'll talk (laughs) about the what's upsetting you later after we've had this game in the story, as she tells it, it's transformative. And the kid is able to continue playing the game and cry. (laughs) My experience as a person is that when I can when I learned that it's okay to have whatever feelings I'm feeling and do the task at the same time that I became capable of doing an enormous amount of things that I hadn't been able to do because I'd felt like I'm sad. So I can't go to this meeting and show up and actually participate fully in this meeting because I'm sad. 
And then when I realized that I could facilitate a meeting and be low energy or sad simultaneously was mind blowing. And yet when I try it with my kids, I'm like, okay, so you're anxious and you're worried and you're afraid. And there's this thing that needs to get done. Can you be afraid and do this thing? I start to get a, okay, maybe from them. And it's transformative. I worked recently with a bunch of people who felt like when they were facilitating a meeting with a lot of people, they had to come in as perky and peppy, no (laughs) matter what they were actually feeling. And so it was exhausting Yeah, because they work super hard and they're never that energized because the level of energy that they are just spending all the time meant that they were always a little bit low key. And yeah. like, you don't actually have to work that hard. You can actually show up and facilitate a meeting that has 30 people in it and be low key as long as you're honest and not pretending to be more upbeat than you are. If you just come in and be who you are and do what needs to be done, you can do it with whatever energy you currently have. Yeah, that was a big light bulb moment for me reading this book. The way she words it about the expansion of what is possible in your life. And she talks about it also in terms of looking at your values. And she talks about her own kind of struggle with a value of being engaged at work and being an engaged parent. And I think the way she describes it is the way a lot of people look at things in their life when they have trouble with the complexity of both and kind of put a rule in for rule's sake which is I will leave work at five o'clock. Taking everything else that's a part of this book in terms of context and in terms of honoring both your values, that it's more of how do you want to be? What's your state of being when you're in this part of your life as opposed to necessarily having to draw a very specific line in the sand? It's more about how, in her example, of being an engaged and active participant at work and being an engaged and active parent at home. There's a way for both of those to work together as opposed to just making it about a deadline or a time, because if things then can't work to that deadline, if she has to stay past five o'clock, then the way she has created that in her mind, then staying past five o'clock equals being a less engaged parent. So that whole idea of just the expansion of what's possible was something that really got me thinking in terms of looking at emotional agility from a perspective of how do you want to be? What's the state of being that you want to perpetuate in different parts of your life as opposed to really compartmentalizing? Yeah, it makes me think of holding things loosely. Our values are generally speaking the things we hold uh, tightly, for lack of a better word. But yeah. other things that come from that behaviors and decisions, yeah, I think it's what you're getting at, Alyssa, is like, it's helpful to hold them loosely so that we have agility. And actually, speaking of expansion and opening up choice, the image I most loved was the chessboard example, which is, it's this concept that our emotions don't have to grip us and limit our choice. 
And I think about leaders in the workplace and feeling like, gosh, if I feel an emotion, I'm, I'm stripped of choice. That's it. That's going to ruin my day. Or as you said, Kate, I can't go lead this next meeting <laughs> or I'm not going to be effective. And in truth, we're not the pawn on the chessboard that is just at the mercy of whatever emotion is swirling around at that moment. And like, let's hope the next move puts me in a good mood, right? It's, <laughs> it's easy to think of our lives that way, but the expansive view is thinking of ourselves as the chessboard, which is well, you know, you kind of don't know what your opponent's going to do, uh, you know, unless you're a world champion chess player and you can read minds and things like that. But most of us don't know what's coming at us next. But if you hold it loosely, you see that there are 19, 20, 50, 60 different moves that are actually possible. It's it's not this predetermined thing. And if something comes your way from your opponent or your colleague or your boss that puts you in a bad mood, you still have multiple moves available to you. It could be go into the bathroom stall and cry a little bit <laughs> and come back to work. Definitely done that before. But there are other moves available to you. It's just, it's good to remember that, that we're not at the mercy of that. We don't have to become quite so entrenched and, and trapped. I really like that she brings up the quote from Viktor Frankl, which is between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So Nithya, to what you were saying before, that idea of, yes, forces do act on us and we have an opportunity to create space to say, okay, this has happened. What do I want to do in response? And the difference between response and reaction and the power that comes from knowing that we have the opportunity to take a minute and be intentional about how we want to take the information in and how we want to respond. Yeah. I think the thing that plays into all of this that I spend a lot of time in my one-on-one coaching sort of helping people deal with is that the hardest part is often breaking the unconsciousness around the habitual response to feelings that when we have a habitual response, we have an emotional experience and then we act from it. And it isn't even conscious that we have taken the action in response to the emotion. So that space where we have freedom, the space that Frankel is pointing to, we don't notice it. And so we can't take advantage of it because we haven't noticed it. So in order to start seeing it, we need to cultivate a practice of looking for it. I work with all these high achievers, right? And they all want to make the change now. And I'm like, okay, but before you can make the change, you have to separate your thought from yourself and separate your emotion from your sense of self. And you have to notice how fast you're moving from something happening to you being in action in response to it. That feels like such a tiny baby step because it's hard. Cultivating that consciousness is the hardest part. Once you've got the consciousness, then you can put in journaling and you can put in practices of paying attention and you can put in practices of saying, okay, when I notice this, I can make choices and you can start being conscious about the choices that you're making. For people who are listening and who are like, I don't even notice this stuff, know that this is the hardest part. We've talked about that before too, that learning process of going from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. And I think that it is 
difficult and it's so rewarding when yeah. you stop doing things on autopilot and you do some discovery about, oh, what do I do without thinking? Let me look at that a little bit more. And if I were to stop and think about it, is that the way I want to respond in that situation? So then you're bringing the consciousness to it. You're consciously making some different choices until at some point that does become your new way of being and you can do it without thinking about it. But it is hard work and it is a process. And it is, as Susan David puts it, an evolution, that continuing change that we can make by tweaking small things so that we not only change our habits, but in going through that process, increase our own agility that we can then bring to other aspects. And I think a lot about the cascading effects of doing this, because Mm -hmm. after all, we talk about leadership on this podcast, and my work involves supporting leaders in their ongoing development. And these behaviors are not only important to cultivate in the individual so that we can be more effective, but also so that that way of being cascades to the teams that we lead. Because as we've said, I think numerous times on this podcast, leaders set the tone, leaders set the culture. Of course, there are other influences on on tone and culture, but leaders are so primary in that. The people you lead are watching what you do just as much as they're listening to what you say. And I know in the, in the parenting world, people say this all the time, I'm not a parent, but I hear <laughs> that the <laughs> kids do as we do and as we say, or at least, yep. <laughs> or at least they're equal. <laughs> Your only actual lever in parenting is modeling what you want to see. There you go. Modeling. Yeah. So, you know, leaders who are listening to this, especially true if you're also a parent, but, but even if you're not, is it doesn't just stop at taking these lessons and talking about them. It's great to talk about them. Great. If you want to take lessons like the ones we share here to your teams and encourage emotional agility. And it's really wonderful to say those things. I think, like I say, it helps set a tone, but unless you model it, people will learn from what you're doing. And if they see the inconsistency, then you're not setting the right culture. Then you're just setting a culture of, well, we can talk about stuff, but when it comes to the real thing, we bottle up. One of the ways you can have most negative impact in terms of trust is to talk about all of this stuff and encourage your people to do this and not to have done it yourself. Yes. Because if you haven't done it yourself and you're encouraging your people to open up and become vulnerable, that actually creates a really scary environment. It really becomes important if you are going to talk about this stuff to do the work yourself to live it because otherwise you inadvertently create this disconnect and that hypocrisy creates more distrust than you being straightforward about, please don't have your emotions at work. None of us have emotions at work. It's actually cleaner. Because at least it's consistent. That's consistent. (laughs) The most fascinating thing to me in this entire book was the thing that she talks about, about the impact of bottling emotions on the other people around you. And she talks a little bit about the impact of brooding and the impact on other people. But that one is more commonly understood in the world. If you dump your emotions, on people, they get exhausted and they don't want to deal with it. And they walk away because it's just too much to have people always dumping their emotions on you. And that's the bad impact that brooding has. The bad impact that bottling has is that even if nobody knows that you're not feeling your feelings, their blood pressure increases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was fascinating. And 
And if you think about it, if my blood pressure increases and my internal meaning making system goes into what's going on analysis, which is, which it's going to, because it always does. It's always sort of checking in on my body to figure out what's going on. Something stressful is happening in my environment and I am having an increased stress response. I am on heightened threat alert because I'm interpreting my increased blood pressure as something out there is something I need to worry about. There's a physiological mechanism whereby if I bottle my feelings, the people around me are going to become more reactive. It's so fascinating. I mean, the people yeah. talk about emotional contagion and, and all of that. I didn't realize before reading this book that there is truly a physiological response that is so powerful. And talk about the ripple effect. If that goes on over a period of time, Kay, what you're describing years and years over the course of a career, just imagine what it's doing to the people around us and the behaviors it's unconsciously teaching them. And then as they become leaders, what that is then spreading. This is one of those places where we have to think about ourselves and our response to emotions, but we also, I really think, have to take responsibility for what effect that those choices have on other people, whether we realize it or not. I think this is really, really important because it actually gets to all kinds of things. If you think about as a leader, the kinds of things you have to do in terms of organizational planning and organizational structure creation and process development and all of those sorts of things. Every time you bring something in new, you are creating stress no matter what else is going on because change is inherently stressful. If you have already come from a baseline of we don't feel our feelings at work and so we have a culture that already has this heightened blood pressure impact that we are reinforcing on each other, the baseline of stress is high enough that there's just how much room is there. So we shouldn't be surprised that change management initiatives never work. or rarely work. Like the baseline, let us settle our physiology is foundational for whether any of these big things can actually happen on a process level. I think there's something there too, Kate, from what you were talking about. And then going back to what Nithya was talking about modeling as a leader. Sometimes I come across leaders who say they want to encourage all of this in their people, but it's not okay for them to show it. It's the, yes, I show all this compassion for my people, but they don't model as Susan David talks about in the book, the self-compassion. And a lot of times that's a wall that you really need to help them chip away at because they have this image of this strong, impenetrable leader and a kind and forgiving leader when it comes to their people, but then they don't show it themselves. So helping them find that balance of saying these things that you realize are important for your people, they need to see you modeling that. That's the awareness that we need to help people increase is their awareness around the need to show up for themselves with self-compassion. That compassion is not just something they show to others and then make it look like it's off limits for themselves. You know, I'm thinking about how this ties back to the importance of values and why you do what you do. I'm thinking about a CEO that I worked with who was playing in this space and was reacting to feedback from their employees. The CEO said to me, when I don't show feelings in situations, I get complaints about how I'm not showing feelings. And then when I do show feelings, I get complaints about how I'm not tough enough. 
you're never going to satisfy everybody. It is impossible to satisfy everybody. You actually have to make a decision as the CEO of this company, whether you believe that it will serve the company for you to model having feelings and showing feelings or not having feelings and showing feelings. And you actually have to make a decision about what you believe is best for the company and then do that. And then you have to accept the fact that there will be a bunch of people who disagree with you. I suppose the good news in that is that every situation is going to be different. And so it's not as though if you've made one choice in one moment, that you can't make a different choice the next time around. I think your values are the ones that are going to be able to dictate what the right balance is for you. This is one where I dial it up or dial it down. Yeah. Yeah, And the piece that that I think is super important is that there's the difference between expressing your feelings and having your feelings. And even if you decide that this is a moment where expressing your feelings fully is probably not the wisest course of action, if you have feelings and you don't let yourself have your feelings for yourself, that causes the blood pressure effect. I actually had a friend remind me the other day of something I taught her and hearing it come out of her mouth, I was like, oh, it was in the concept of helping people through change. And the idea that all reactions are legitimate, all behaviors are not. So Kate, to your point, people have to be allowed to have their feelings. That doesn't mean that everybody gets to act in a way that could be detrimental to Mm -hmm. the organization. So in your example, Kate, if the value is about doing what's right for the organization, that's what's going to influence how you express your feelings or how you behave. The value itself doesn't change. The expression of the value is where the agility comes in. What's right? in this particular context. There's something also that happens because our feelings don't last very long. Our feelings last about 90 seconds. It's how they work because they're messengers. And if you are stuck listening to the message from five minutes ago, you won't have noticed anything that's changed in the last three and a half minutes. Emotions don't last long. If the circumstances don't change, the message is the same over and over and over again. But because they don't last very long, if we separate the thinker from the thought and we make a choice to do anything, we change the circumstances and therefore the feelings change. Let's say, for instance, I'm having a low energy day and I'm feeling sad and I have a big meeting to go to. I can say I'm sad and I have to go to this meeting. What is important about this meeting? A decision is going to be made in this meeting that's going to determine how we function in the next period of time. I'm sad and I'm going to this meeting and I'm separated from my emotions so I don't have to act out my sadness. I can act out my commitment to having a good decision made in this meeting. And as soon as I've made that choice, the rest of my emotional self starts to shift in response to the fact that this is important. All of the focus goes to how do I make this happen? And then that sadness, it's not like I shut it out or bottled it up. It's just not front and center anymore. I, of course, see parallels between this book and a book we read a few books ago, which is uh, No Hard Feelings, Molly Westuffy and Liz Fosslein. And there is concept overlap between the two books in terms of let's let go of this notion that emotions don't belong at work and think about 
how to use them rather than making them wrong. I do think it's worth repeating that as we talk about emotional agility, channeling our emotions, how we express them, whether we bottle or brood or choose something else. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that when we express our emotions, we are received differently based on who we are. Kate, you brought up an example earlier of saying, I believe it was a CEO who says, gosh, when I show my feelings, I'm too emotional. When I don't, I'm too robotic. There's just oodles and oodles of research of how women are received differently in the workplace when they're even perceived as having an emotion. Leaders who are people of color are received differently and the threat response from other people is different. These are realities of our workplace that shouldn't be over overlooked. So I wouldn't want us to have this conversation without noting that we aren't all received the same because of just really deeply ingrained attitudes and biases that aren't going to change overnight. My hope in sharing this, my hope isn't to tell women leaders or leaders who are people of color or, or any other groups that we often hold to a double standard or attach these viewpoints to. My hope is that those folks don't shy away from showing their true selves at work, but rather reach out and get the support they need in order to become more emotionally agile at work. It is possible that they may need more support in order to understand how to flex their style and, and show up the way they want to. Let's just acknowledge that. But that's my hope is, is not to shy away, but actually to lean into the discomfort that comes from that and say, you know what, I'm going to get messy and get real anyway. I said that the first thing that I really took away from this was the impact of bottling on other people's blood pressure. The other piece that I read and was like, this is so cool, is she talks about a Harvard psychology professor who found that musicians who play mindfully, audiences like their music better than musicians who play not mindfully. And women who give presentations with mindfulness, so who actually show up with full presence, that mindfulness trumps the gender bias in their audience. So this stuff is scarier if you are someone who is concerned about other people will see me with these lenses of bias. Like it's scarier to engage in the process of mindfully showing up as fully who you are and the impact that it can have on your career and your effectiveness is more powerful than for people who are less marginalized. And so, yes, it's hard and it's scary and you don't want to practice mindful presentation for the first time in front of the whole company. <laughs> you want to start where it's safer, where it's less risky. Find a group of people that you know already trust you and already see you well and practice changing how you come so that you let a little bit more of your real self out in an environment that feels safer and practice and build your capacity because the impact that it can have on your career is to overcome the biases. To me, that is the most hopeful thing. And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots, foundational knowledge? Is it the trunk, main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific tools? 
this in the trunk category. And the reason for that is, while there are some practical elements to the book, there is still foundational thinking in here around reorienting your mind away from a certain way of thinking and towards a new way of thinking. So it's not quite at the roots for me, because I think a lot of the concepts are actually fairly intuitive, but it requires an unlearning of certain things in order to embrace what Susan David talks about in this book. And that takes it a little bit more into the behavioral. There is something in here about doing the thing is what can help change the mindset. One way of putting it is that outside in approach, right? So for me, that puts it in the trunk category. I also land in the trunk category for a slightly different reason. It's in the space of when I think of a roots book, I think of this is a thing that I get a philosophical approach from that I might want to go back and revisit, but I might want to go back and revisit sort of once a year or once every six months to remind myself of sort of what are the big picture things that I want to be paying attention to. And when I think of a branches book, I think of I've got a particular problem that I want to solve today. This is a book that talks about stuff that I want to be paying attention to all the time. I land on trunk as well for two main reasons. One, similar to what you've both said, is that it is about constantly being aware of our relationship with our emotions. How do we express those and how do we observe them? And the other thing that to me puts this in the trunk category is the emphasis on values throughout. And to me, values are things that grow from the roots, but keep us grounded and keep us growing. It's that emphasis on moving in service of and in the direction of your values that she stresses throughout this lesson on emotional agility that for me puts this in the trunk category. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. So I'm laughing because I'm going to do a thing that Nithya often does, which is a think away that requires some context about a part of the book that we haven't talked about. And that's because we haven't actually talked about the structure of the book very much. And she actually has a framework about the gap between hooked emotionally and thriving, having four steps that you have to move through. And the first is showing up, which is facing into your emotions and actually looking at them and then stepping out. That's the one where you separate the thinker from the thoughts and you separate yourself from your feelings, then walking your why. So once you've separated, figure out what your values are and then moving on, letting it go and just keeping moving forward. That four part framework we've sort of alluded to, but she sets it out as a, this is how you go from hooked to thriving. So my think away is think about yourself a little bit and get curious about which of those four places is the place where you're a little weak, that it might be worth stepping up a little bit. My think away is along those lines, but just very specific in terms of the way she talks about understanding our values is really the key to fulfillment. So my think away is to consider what are your values? And I like the way she puts it in terms of just asking some very simple questions. 
what matters to me? What kind of relationships do I want to have? What kind of impact do I want to have? What are some simple questions you can ask yourself to get to that deeper why and the values that can guide you through your own emotional agility? And my takeaway has to do with the fact that this concept of emotional agility was actually lauded by Harvard Business Review, I found, as a management idea of the year. When I saw that, I thought, huh, why is it a management idea of the year? And as I poked around a bit more, I found that it's because we talk about organizational agility. We talk about organizations that operate in an agile way. Emotional agility in individuals and in teams is linked to organizational agility. And so my think has to do with if you're working at an organization where either you are already agile, at least on paper, or trying to cultivate agile process, and if you're running into any challenges whatsoever, I, I don't know that anybody has it done perfectly, <laughs> I would encourage you to think about what's the level of emotional agility in you and the people around you in the organization, and how much are you modeling that? Because we can't hope for process agility without emotional agility. I mean, they're just, they're so interconnected. We can't say we're going to be one way and do another way. Consider the obstacles you may be facing and think about, well, how can we model the way we want to be with each other and then have that inner agility translate to outer process agility? This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcast. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under leadership underscore arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license. Thanks.